Greetings. I'm James Homan from The Washington Post, and this is a special Sunday edition of The Daily 202. Here are election 2020 updates from today's show. Joe Biden was the wrong man for the moment in his two previous presidential campaigns. In 1988 and 2008, he didn't fit with what the country was looking for. But he had enough longevity to convince voters that he was right for this one. And now the man who was once the country's youngest senator will become her oldest president. The son of a car salesman and a homemaker, the product of Catholic schools and public universities, the six-term senator and two-term vice president, has craved one title above all others in decades of trying and decades of failing. On Saturday, Biden won it. President-elect. Remarkably, Biden secured the presidency on the 48th anniversary of his first election to the Senate in 1972. His victory was the culmination of four long years of struggle for Democrats and others who have resisted President Trump. It was celebrated by an emotional outpouring in cities from coast to coast that ended with a tailgate-style victory party late Saturday night in Biden's hometown of Wilmington. The election took four days to be resolved after the former vice president was projected to win a series of battleground states. His win was clinched, fittingly, by Pennsylvania, the state where he was born. In a primetime speech to flag-waving supporters outside the Chase Center from a few miles from his house, the 77-year-old son of Scranton made no mention of Trump's intransigence and refusal to concede. Instead, he offered an olive branch to the president's supporters. And he implored all Americans to put away the harsh rhetoric and end what he called this grim era of demonization. The Bible tells us to everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap, and a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. The president who triumphed four years ago on an outsider's promise to drain the swamp has lost to a quintessential creature of Washington. Trump went golfing on Saturday at his own course and then fired off more than a dozen angry tweets that baselessly claimed victory and said the election was being stolen from him because of fraud. It is not. Most Republican leaders, afraid of drawing Trump's ire, remained silent rather than publicly acknowledging the outcome of a free and fair election resulting in their standard bearer's defeat. One exception was Mitt Romney. In addition to the Keystone State, Biden was also projected on Saturday afternoon as the winner in Nevada, completing his successful defense of all the states won by Hillary Clinton in 2016. He is still leading in the formerly Republican terrain of Arizona and Georgia. Biden has amassed a record 74.6 million votes, beating Trump in the popular vote by more than 4 million, a margin that will increase as California finishes counting its ballots. By denying Donald Trump a second term, a country that has been convulsed by health, economic, and social crises, will bring to an end a tumultuous presidency that's been characterized by attacks on undocumented immigrants, political adversaries, the free press, and the rule of law itself. In his speech, Biden pledged to be a president for everyone, and he said Trump supporters won't regret it if they give him a chance. He said he will earnestly work with congressional Republicans to try to get things done. 
He called the lack of bipartisan cooperation in recent years a decision we've made. And then he added, And if we can decide not to cooperate, then we can decide to cooperate. And I believe that this is part of the mandate given to us from the American people. They want us to cooperate in their interest. And that's the choice I'll make. Meanwhile, when the vice president-elect stepped forward on Saturday night, for the first time in American history, she was not a man. Voters made history this week in electing Kamala Devi Harris, a senator from California and the daughter of Jamaican and Indian immigrants, the country's first woman, first black person, and first Asian American to hold the number two job. Harris will become the highest ranking woman in our government's 244-year existence, as well as a high-profile representation of the country's increasingly diverse composition. Black women helped propel Biden and Harris to victory by elevating turnout in places like Detroit, Milwaukee, and Philadelphia, not to mention Atlanta. These women will finally see themselves represented in the White House as Biden and Harris take over. It's fitting because Trump started his political career by perpetuating a racist birther lie about Barack Obama, and he has a long history of making misogynistic comments. For her victory speech on Saturday night, Harris emerged in all white. It was a nod to the uniform of the suffragettes, who secured the right to vote for women with the ratification of the 19th Amendment exactly 100 years ago. Harris is 56. Her victory comes 55 years after the Voting Rights Act abolished laws that disenfranchised black Americans, 36 years after the first woman ran on a presidential ticket, which lost 49 states except Minnesota, and four years after Democrats were devastated by Hillary Clinton's defeat. Now that he's won, Biden's team is starting to share with us some details about the flurry of executive orders that he plans to sign as soon as he is sworn in on January 20th. Biden will rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. He will reverse Trump's withdrawal from the World Health Organization. He will repeal the ban on almost all travel from some Muslim-majority countries. And he will reinstate the program allowing DREAMers, who were brought to the United States illegally as children, to remain in the country. Annie Linsky, Matt Viser, and Sungmin Kim report that Biden's top advisors have spent months quietly working on how best to implement his agenda, with hundreds of transition officials preparing to get to work inside various agencies. They've assembled a book filled with his campaign commitments to guide their early decisions. Biden has said that he plans to immediately reverse Trump's rollback of a hundred different public health and environmental rules that the Obama administration put in place. Biden will also institute new ethics guidelines at the White House, and he pledges to sign an executive order on day one, saying that no member of his administration is allowed to influence any Justice Department investigations. There's also been a recognition of those around Biden that he may have to lean more on executive actions than he had hoped. A Republican-held Senate, or even one with a narrow Democratic majority, it depends on the outcome of the two runoff elections in January in Georgia, will affect who Biden puts in his cabinet, given the Senate's power to confirm nominees. But one option being discussed at the highest levels of the campaign, or the transition, I should say, is appointing cabinet members in an acting capacity, a tactic that Trump has created a precedent to do. 
Biden's transition effort is being overseen by Ted Kaufman, one of his closest advisors and longtime friends. Biden's transition team has been given government-issued computers and iPhones so that they can conduct secure encrypted communications. They've also been given 10,000 square feet of office space in the Herbert Hoover Building in Washington, although most of their work's being done virtually because of the pandemic. But one important, even critical next step is for the head of the General Services Administration to rule that the election results are final, which would enable Biden's transition team to expand its work and gain access to government funds. For context, George W. Bush's administration issued that order the night of the 2008 election. Biden officials are prepared for legal action if Emily Murphy, the Trump political appointee who runs the GSA, delays that decision. And in a statement last night, a GSA spokeswoman was noncommittal about whether they plan to comply with the law. Ultimately, the story of Biden's victory is as much as anything the story of Trump's defeat. A devastating coda for a leader who has long feared weakness and losing above almost all else, but who just became the first one-term president in nearly 30 years. Trump is the first president in the history of polling to never have had the support or approval of a majority of Americans or voters on a single day of his presidency. He will become the fourth president in U.S. history to never win the popular vote in an election. In four years, Trump's approval rating never cracked 50% in any credible poll. When you think about it that way, it's no wonder he lost. But it wasn't inevitable. In fact, it's exceedingly difficult to defeat a sitting president. Trump becomes just the 10th president in American history to be denied a second term. He's only the third incumbent in the past century to be denied a second full term, joining George H.W. Bush in 1992, Jimmy Carter in 1980, and Hoover in 1932. The other members of this bitter club of one and dunners are John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Martin Van Buren, Franklin Pierce, Benjamin Harrison, and William Howard Taft. Aides and allies of Trump told my colleagues Ashley Parker, Josh Dossie, and Michael Shearer that the president lost because of how he mismanaged the virus. They say that he lost over the summer when COVID-19 didn't go away as he promised, when racial unrest roiled the nation in the wake of George Floyd's death and protesters ran rampant through the streets, and when federal authorities gassed largely peaceful demonstrators in Lafayette Square across from the White House so that Trump could stage a photo op holding a Bible in front of a church. And he lost, they said, during that roughly three-week stretch from late September to mid-October, when an angry and brooding Trump heckled and interrupted his way through the first debate, and then days later announced that he had tested positive for the coronavirus. He also lost, aides added, after years of confrontational and incendiary conduct toward independent voters that turned them off. They had finally had enough. The same impulses that helped lift Trump to victory four years ago, that outsider ethos, that angry, burn-it-all-down, cree de care, the fiery and controversial rants, the false reality forged through untruths and deception, contributed to his undoing in 2020. People in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, people who gave Trump a shot, were exhausted, and they turned on him. One senior campaign official says the pandemic had two especially deleterious effects. The virus magnified Trump's worst qualities while allowing Biden to recede from the spotlight, making the race a referendum on the president. 
down the stretch, the Trump campaign placed enormous faith in its massive voter contact and mobilization effort, a project that cost them more than $350 million. In the final weeks, Trump charged through more than two dozen rallies in more than a half dozen battleground states, including 10 in the final two days. But the problem was never where Trump was. It was who he is and what he said when he was there. Offensive riffs, demeaning swipes, and fantastical claims that the coronavirus was nearly gone. But in a sad reminder that it is anything but, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and five other Trump aides tested positive in the days after the election. Meadows tested positive on Wednesday after hanging out for hours without a mask at the president's election night party with hundreds of others in the East Room. After he got diagnosed with COVID, Meadows ordered White House staff not to disclose his condition, and he successfully kept it covered up until late Friday night. Now we learn that in addition to Meadows and five other White House staffers, a senior campaign advisor has also tested positive. In his speech on Saturday night, Biden said that controlling the coronavirus will be his first order of business. He announced that on Monday, he will name a group of scientists and experts who will help coordinate the federal response starting January 20th. For the fourth consecutive day, the United States broke its single-day record for new COVID cases on Saturday. More than 134,000 Americans tested positive. And state authorities on Saturday reported more than 1,100 new COVID deaths, bringing our confirmed death toll to more than 237,000. Biden will be our second Catholic president following John F. Kennedy. And he closed his remarks last night by reading from a popular Catholic hymn on eagle's wings. He offered it as a source of solace to those who have lost loved ones to the contagion. He will raise you up on eagle's wings, bear you on the breath of dawn, make you to shine like the sun, and hold you in the palm of his hand. And now, together, on eagle's wings, we embark on the work that God and history have called upon us to do. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. If you want to hear full episodes, find The Daily 202 every weekday morning wherever you get your podcasts.